Why, hello, it is Adam. Welcome back to Bringing It Backwards, a podcast where both legendary and rising artists tell their own personal stories of how they achieve stardom. On this episode, we had a chance to hang out with Eric Krasno of multiple projects. He was in Lettuce and Soul Live. He's got a solo thing going. He's produced for a number of artists. He's got a couple Grammy Awards, set, I believe seven Grammy nominations, but we hear his whole backstory of how he got into music. Started playing bass and guitar around 13 years old, went to a guitar camp. We talk about his time at Berkeley, and that's where Lettuce formed. Starting Soul Live and the longevity of that band and all the milestones that they had accomplished over the years, opening up for the Rolling Stones, to all of Eric's production credits and songwriting credits, and all about his new record. He just released a solo album called Always. You can watch the interview with Eric and myself on our Facebook page and YouTube channel at Bringing It Backwards. It'd be rad if you subscribe to our channel, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bringing Back Pod. And if you're listening to this on Spotify or Apple Music, please uh, hook us up with a follow and a five-star review. That means so much to us. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're Bringing It Backwards with Eric Krasno. Yeah, so this is about you uh, and your kind of origin story in music, and we'll talk about the new record that comes out tomorrow. Great, great. Sweet. Um, I know what's funny is I just interviewed, uh, do you know who Brad Barr is? Yeah, he's a good friend, yeah. I was going to say, I thought so, because we were talking and I asked him, uh, he's got a new record out. It's like all guitar driven, just uh, just him on guitar, really. Uh, and I was asking him, you know, kind of what the milestones were in his career with the slip, and he was like, Playing New York City with lettuce. That was like the first thing yeah. he said. I was like, yeah, oh, yeah. that's so funny. <laughs> nice, nice. nice. So yeah, I, I've known Brad since we were like 13 years old, I think. Oh, wow. I, met, I didn't realize yeah, that. Yeah, okay. I met him. I met it, or maybe 14. It was at this thing called National Guitar Summer Workshop. It was like this, it was like guitar camp is what we called it. And wow. uh, he was like, he was one of the first like really young guitar players that I met that were and also his brother came up and like jammed with us i was like totally um amazed by them like the brother duo mm -hmm. um and got to play with them a lot over the years you know in various formations and i love his guitar music too his first uh guitar record he yeah. made like whatever 10 years 15 years ago or something mm -hmm. i used to it was actually it got stuck in my old car <laughs> it was the only <laughs> but i was like happy about it it was like the i used to listen to it constantly that's so funny yeah, but I'm, so i funny. love brad what a great guy and actually when they did like a reunion the slip reunion show a year or two like right before the pandemic i think uh, i sat in with them up in san francisco Oh, you did. That's so awesome. Yeah. It was, yeah. you just kind of mentioned, he's like, oh, lettuce, blah, blah, blah. And then I'm, and I didn't put it all together until yeah. like an hour ago. I'm like, wait a minute. I should have brought this yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> so I figured I'd yeah, bring I it love up. Brad. Yeah. yeah I, I just assumed that you guys met because you went to Berkeley, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Although I don't know if we went there at the same time, but we were friends even way before that. Yeah. Wow. Um, but then there was so many different kind of intertwining connections with him um so like we we met early on but then just stayed friends you know over the years from so many different connections throughout the years but yeah that's amazing well real quick where were you born and raised um i was randomly i was born in florida but i didn't live there at all but i grew up like um in connecticut till i was about 13 uh, and I moved around a lot. I was, at, I went to high school in Vermont, in Putney, Vermont. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to like in kind of a pretty alternative artsy school. And then, uh, I spent some time in Boston at Berkeley and then I transferred to Hampshire college, in Massachusetts. So I, I would, it's easiest just to say the Northeast. I lived in Boston <laughs> for a while and then okay. pretty much my whole adult life in New York city. I moved there and the end of 99 and was there till 2019. So 20 years. And oh, then I wow. moved to LA. So I've been in LA since 2019. Oh my. Okay. Wow. Well, knowing that you, you met uh, Brad at 13 at this guitar camp, I'm assuming you, you obviously knew guitar at that point, but what was the first instrument you learned how to play and how old were you? It was actually bass was the first instrument. Like my dad got me a bass for Christmas 
either 12 or 13. I, I know. So I, when I went to that guitar camp, I could barely play. My brother oh, wow. was, I had an older brother who was a musician, guitarist and piano player and still is. But at that time, and he had bands at that time, that was like partly why I wanted to play. I wanted to like hang with my older brother's friends and sure. they were jamming in the basement and I wanted to be included, you know? And he went to this guitar camp and my dad kind of just like, was like, well, they let you go too. He was, he was like, I need some time off here. You know? Right. Like, I'll get both kids out of house this way. <laughs> also, my parents were divorced. So like my dad was kind of single daddy at the time, okay. um, which now I totally understand it in a whole different light. But uh, yeah, and uh, I could, I was just learning a few chords at the time, but that summer and being around Brad and a lot of these other guitarists that were way ahead of me was so good for me because it just kind of like thrust me into it. Um, so that was a really important time for me um, because like I went from like a few cowboy chords to like actually learning my way around the instrument. Mm-hmm. Wow. And from, from there, like getting out of, you know, that summer at this guitar camp, did you go home and now you got some knowledge under your belt? Like, are you starting a band at this point? Are you still new yeah. at home? I mean, I was trying to start bands for a very long time. Um, and really, and then I went away to school in Vermont and, uh, I was practicing a lot, playing mostly by myself. And then I went to the summer program at Berkeley, um, which was when I was 15 going on 16. I turned 16 that summer, I think. And, uh, that's where I met Adam Deitch and Adam Smirnoff, all the lettuce guys. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge turning point for me to see other guys my age that were like as passionate about music and that were just like so advanced. I mean, I was learning so much from being around them, but uh, it was inspiring to like see other guys because in my hometown or even at my school, like there was other musicians there, but not that, that not guys that were like so obsessed with it the way I was. And Mm -hmm. to meet these guys and they were so much further along than me too. And it, it, it really kicked me in the butt to like, start practicing more and it also just opened my eyes to so much music that i hadn't necessarily heard like and um i was into like funk and jazz and things like that but hadn't like gone down the rabbit hole and it was cool because a lot of it, ryan zoitis all the lettuce guys kind of came together that summer and brought different records to like a collective uh kind of mind so we mm-hmm. we I, I was all into Herbie Hancock and Thrust and, and that era of Herbie Hancock, but I was also into like psychedelic music, Grateful Dead, Pink Floyd. And uh, Adam was like Earth, Wind and Fire. Um, and we were all into James Brown. But then Ryan Zoitis was brought the Tower of Power. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we all had like different things that we, and we would just sit there and listen to music for hours and hours on end and hang out and jam. Um, and there was like a little practice room uh in the berkeley dorm there and we would just spend all night because like people would sign it out in the daytime but no one like after like we would just go there all night you know because oh, nobody would just take play the all, night yeah, slots <laughs> yeah there was not that wasn't even on the sheet you know what oh. i mean so we'd get like the last one and like type then we would just hang in there the whole night you know that's amazing when you went to the the berkeley the camp before going there uh that yeah. you said that's when you met the guys from, from that's Lattis? when i met the guys that's pretty much the time period that i'm that i'm like speaking of oh, and okay. then we all we all decided that we would go there um two years later we were all the same age i think adam smirnoff was like a year older so he started earlier but we all were like okay we're gonna come back and we're gonna form a band when we get here mm-hmm. uh two two years later of course, then I left after a semester and then everyone kind of splintered off. But we all, it, it, the funny thing is I, I, the greatest thing about Berkeley for me was just the connection Like to this day. I mean, I only took a handful of classes there, mm-hmm. but uh, it was really about the connections that I got to make there and the people like I'm still working with so many of the people that I met in that short time period. Yeah. That's what's amazing about hearing stories from that school, because once you kind of get your, you know, get your crew of people around you, get your band and you're going and having some success. It's like, isn't that the whole like end goal of graduating from there anyway? <laughs> yeah. You, I mean, not that many people graduate. It's pretty, it's kind of rare that uh, people go four years there, but um, you know, it's not necessarily about that. I mean, in music, you know how, it, unless you're, unless you're setting out to be a educate, an educator, 
mm-hmm. um, which is also an amazing path. You know, there's, I'm not, there's no knock in that, but uh, if you're, if you're trying to be a performer or a songwriter or whatever you want to, you know, an artist, it, it, the people aren't really asking you to show your degree when you get to the studio or whatever, <laughs> right. you know, so exactly. it's really, more, it's really about uh, the connections and, you know, it was a different time period too. Like, it's so interesting going back. I've gone back and done some master classes there and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I was there, you had to wait in line and, and to sign up to get into the studio. And there was like this huge list and you had, and mo- it was prioritized for the recording majors. And cause I always wanted to learn about production and, and, and recording, you know, that was the thing. Um, and now, you know, like laptops are, are everywhere and, and right, recording devices. There's a million studios and most people are honestly recording in their rooms or in wherever. So it's a different, world there now and it's exciting man i went and did like um some some really cool stuff there and and all the the students are so advanced with their recording and their producing i did Mm -hmm. the same thing at university of miami and i was just blown away you know because we we were playing with each other but we didn't have the ability to like make records in our room you know Mm -hmm. what i mean and then you have all these musicians like living in the same hall and they're all collaborating and recording and mixing over here and adding this it's such an interesting evolution, um, how people are creating music now. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, like you said, if you have a laptop and like a USB mic, you can kind of put something together. You can make great records like that now. Really? Yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's mind blowing, especially with the pandemic happening. Everyone was like, okay, I got to go grab a setup or grab a few yeah. things and kind of go yeah. that way. So it's, I, yeah. yeah, I'm, I certainly, changed my whole setup during that time i mean the the, re- the new record that that is coming out right now mm-hmm. um was was all made during the pandemic pretty much mostly you know i worked with otis mcdonald the producer um and we did it 90 percent of it remote where i worked in my studio and he worked in his studio and we just sent everything back and forth and then eventually started using uh, this program pedal where we would um do it simultaneously and be able to see each other and record in both of our environments, which was also cool. Cause you know, I have all my pedals, my guitars, my preamps, everything, how I want it. He has mm-hmm. his drum sounds and all his stuff dialed. So it was like better than going to a studio because we had our own really comfortable setups, you know, and I could sit in my pajamas and do the vocals like, you know, <laughs> and uh, so it was actually such a cool way to record in this weird, weird silver lining. Cause I wouldn't have done it that way. But uh, we found a really cool rhythm in, in working and we're both engineers. So like we didn't need to like, we didn't need anyone else, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So we, the two of us made this entire record um, remotely and then he mixed it and mastered it, you know, and I, I could sit here in my studio on my speakers and while he's mixing and mastering it and I could see him and move the faders if I wanted to and be like, Hey, what about this? What about, it was incredible. You know, That's like cool. I, I could not have imagined making records that way even 10 years ago, but definitely mm-hmm. not 20, you know? Wow. Yeah. Cause back then you had to know the big boards and all the big equipment. I mean, you still probably yeah. do if you're recording in like a major studio, but like the fact that you can record a whole record in your house and do it over essentially over a computer like this. Yeah. And, you know, and a lot of this emulation stuff like universal audio and they're like doing it so well that, you know, cause back in the day it was hard to access like a need console or an SSL console to mm-hmm. actually get time working on them was, was hard to come by. Now you can have these plugins that are really kind of amazing and you can sit here and tweak it forever. You know what I mean? At your house. Yeah. I think there's good and bad too. I was just talking to someone about that, that like in certain cases, having too many options can have you like scratching your head and, and can kind of like keep you from the goal. But, uh, but I think if you're using it the right way, it's amazing. I would imagine it could get to the point where you're, because you have time right now and you're, especially during the pandemic, you have time. And if you have the plugins and you know what you're doing, you could almost, do you ever find yourself like overproducing or like having to go back and be like, okay, I get, let's just hear this from the beginning and, and take all these. I, I have gone through that. I think what was nice about working with Otis on this record was I, it freed me up to just be a little bit more about the performance and less about the technical stuff. And mm-hmm. then when we would start doing the more like minute technical stuff, 
it's nice to, it was nice to like work with another person, especially someone like him who I love his ears, you know, cause mm-hmm. we could, we got through things a little quicker, I think, than like I've done stuff. My last project, I did a prep project called Telescope um, and it was just me and another producer, but I would do a lot of tweaking just sitting here. You know, it, there was a nice, like me, Joe and I, Otis and I would like set up sessions, like go on pedal at 2 p.m. tomorrow and we'll, we'll like just knock out this mix, you know? And we, we had a nice flow that kind of like, if we spent too much time on one thing, we would like nudge each other. Like, okay, we're good. Let's, let's not okay. go too far. <laughs> so I think we had a good, um, yes, I've been through that, but I think with this record also, we both were of the mindset, like, let's get good sounds as we're recording and not rely too much on like plugins after the fact. Okay. Um, so we both were like in that mindset. A lot of my guitar sounds that you hear on the record are just what I recorded. I didn't like add a lot of plugins to the guitars. Um, he did some stuff with the mixing and EQs, but it wasn't, we, we, uh, both are, are pretty particular about how our stuff sounds as it's happening. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that has, has helped, you know, as, as the technology has gotten better, um, you know, your home recording can sound really good on like the front end, you know, mm-hmm. whereas like in the early days of digital recording, there was, I felt like I had to tweak everything so much to sound warmer, you know, or to sound better. Um, so I think that's like something that I've learned over time too, from producing other artists is mm-hmm. like, make it sound right when you're making it. <laughs> you right. know, don't, don't say we'll fix it in the mix. Cause that, that never works. Mm-hmm. And even finding the sound of like, yeah. what you wanted to sound like on your amp going in yeah. instead of being like, okay, I'm going to record this in and then we're going to go find the plugin that we want. And then you're probably almost spending more time trying to test and screw around that way than doing exactly what you want, want to do going in. Yeah. And you'll get lost in it at that point. I mean, the other thing is that getting the right sound as you're creating inspires the performance to be better obviously you know Mm -hmm. and i think you know that's something that people think about more so in the live setting but like it's like you know getting it if my guitar sounds right and my head my my headphones sound right or in a perfect world i don't even have headphones on Mm -hmm. um it it's i'm gonna play so much better and i'm gonna Mm -hmm. sing better you know Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. to to rewind here just a little bit uh i'm curious with going to berkeley and you said you you you're out after what one semester was that when lettuce started to like really kind of take off or like or was that the no that, that was then or no we were like playing gigs in like basements and and dorms and occasional co- like clubs opening for people but then then i went to hampshire college because that was my freshman year oh that, yeah okay I was, so then i went to hampshire but we and it was only two hours away from boston so i would book shows for lettuce out there at Hampshire college and we would play at the college and the local club that way, which so it was only, and then sometimes in Boston, but, and then, you know, by the end of college, the other guys in the band all got other gigs. Like uh, Ryan was in a band called rustic overtones. Adam Dyke started playing drums with average white band actually, mm-hmm. which was crazy because they were our heroes. And oh, then, really? That's amazing. Yeah. And then soul live formed uh-huh. the, at my senior year of college. Um, so then soul live really is what took off and we got signed and toured the world and opened for the stones. And like, (laughs) I mean, it's a whole crazy, that's a whole story in itself. But then years after that, it was like, Hey, let's get lettuce back together, you know, or really during that, I'd say was we, we'd play a a gig here, a gig there when I was off the road. Um, and then we'd open for soul live on certain occasions and then eventually, you know, I'm fast forward way later, right. the other guys, the other guys in lettuce, you know, uh, Deitch had then became the drummer for Schofield, who was a friend of soul live, you know, and then he ended up sitting with lettuce said, I love this drummer. Um, and then our guitarist, Schmer, uh, Adam Smirnoff ended up on tour with Robert Randolph. This is oh, in like wow. the two thousands. Cause we were all friends, you know? Yeah. And then. Around I, 2000, Robert Randolph's rad. I had a chance to chat with him before. Yeah, yeah, I love Rob. I mean, Rob. I mean, I played on all of his, a lot of his early stuff, and yeah, I saw like, that. You, you had some yeah, and I, I wrote records. for him and wrote records, songs for him, and um, 
But, you know, when Lettuce around 2012 or 13, the other guys were kind of like, hey, we want to make this our main thing. And at that point, I was doing Soul Live and I was producing a lot more at that time. And then I was also doing stuff with Tedeschi Trucks Band when I wasn't with Soul Live. So I was that I kind of bowed out from the touring side because they were all like, hey, we want to make this like our job and let all of our little our side man gigs go. So when they made that decision, I was like, hey, you know, I'm not ready to like do 150 shows with lettuce with all the other things I'm doing. So mm-hmm. you, you ha- I love you. And they were still best friends, but they started. So they went on touring without me at that point. And I still play with them on occasion but i'm not part of the like uh touring entity anymore got it okay well so okay so soul live started and that's obviously what really took off and what i've what i've seen is like that the record was just kind of the first one right was that just like out of a jam session the the soul first soul live record yeah yeah well there's an ep called get down which was our first time ever getting together. It was like, we, oh, we actually, okay. yeah, I, I actually like showed up and they had a recording rig. We were like rehearsing these tunes and we recorded it. And, you know, back in those days, it was like, let's make a demo CD, you know? And then that mm-hmm. CD kind of became an album. Um, but it, and then we eventually used that. We got, or actually we made another record called Turn It Out, which was a, an LP. Mm-hmm. Um, That's what I was then, thinking. That was the, oh yeah. Turn It Out was a little later. Okay. Um, that was maybe like six months later. Well, not mu- and the, some of the same songs, I think. Some of the same okay. songs are for sure. And then we got signed to Blue Note shortly after that. And then all the the next few albums were with Blue Note Records and Capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we signed with Concord and did a few like Stacks Concord, and we did a couple records yeah. there. And then we started our own label. Wow! In like the um, two thousand eight or nine. And then we put out a handful of records. Yeah, you put out. After that. You put a bunch of records out with, with Soul Live. What, like twelve yeah. albums or something? Yeah, like I think that. it's yeah, twelve or thirteen, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, signing to Blue Note was that. I mean, obviously a huge moment because they're a, ma- a part of a major. Um, yeah. Yeah. What was that like? Like, how uh, well, did that I mean, whole kind of like come band, together? It yeah. Was like that was like the dream. Is like right. that was like the that was like the end goal. You know, it's like <laughs> if we can get signed to Blue Note, we kind of that's it. You know. Uh-huh. Um. And at that time, there was a lot of cool stuff going on. There was a cool scene with Blue Note. And we did a lot of Blue Note tours, you know, because like Medeski, Martin and Wood was Blue Note. And um, Schofield was Verve, but I think he was he had done Blue Note too. And uh, Charlie Hunter and Carl Denson. There was like a whole like scene of people on Blue Note. And we just loved the people there. Like it was a great, that was a great time period. Mm-hmm. Um and Nora Jones had like just signed with them and she was a friend of ours. And there was just like, um, and there was like money in the record business, <laughs> you know, yeah, right. that was like the end <laughs> what of it, a world. You know? There was like advances <laughs> and you sold records and you actually like made money from records and from touring, you know? Um, and then that drastically changed, but uh, yeah, I mean, for an instrumental band to get support like that, like I think about that nowadays and it's like, it's so different. Um, and there was a lot of, I don't know if we valued it as much as I would now, you know? Um, of course, we spent a lot of money to make records, which now I kind of laugh at, like thinking about how much we spent to make uh, the Doing Something album. It was like insane, you know, how mm-hmm. we were spending so much on studios and catering. Yeah, it was like hundreds and, of thousands of dollars, Hundreds right? of thousands. Our, advance- yeah. our, our budgets were so crazy. Now people make records for like one day the one like what we spent on one day of that record would make like two albums now you know so wild yeah it's crazy but we also sold a lot of records and you know we had tour support i mean it was crazy we were going to Mm -hmm. we were going all over the world and um it was a beautiful thing you know we had a huge following in japan as a result um which was just kind of crazy timing um i try to think about that now because now like you 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 battle it out on the road and slowly try to build your following when we first time we ever went to japan we were selling thousands of tickets you know (laughs) which was like which i don't even know if that could happen again i mean for for pop artists it's different but Mm -hmm. for like a technically like an instrumental funk trio you know we kind of like hit at a certain time period and uh 
so it, and it was a beautiful thing you know it's it we had so much fun and and uh but it was strange because we would do that and then we'd come back to the states and we'd be playing like you know bars you know and, and carrying our own gear again and back in the van you know <laughs> so it was like this weird like dream you know we'd come back we'd be like wait a second okay no now we're like in new hampshire at a bar again mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> but uh yeah i mean we had a very interesting career in that way because like like 2002 uh for example we opened for the rolling stones and we would play like these uh, arenas with them yeah, one night and then the next day we the next day we'd be at like the irish pub and you know lexington you know oh, uh, wow. and then the next day we'd be like in new york playing our headlining irving plaza we had our our like day-to-day was so unique because it was like we could be playing a jazz club one day or an arena the next day and a jam band festival the next day um mm-hmm. so it was an interesting time for sure yeah wow and then amongst was that like your full gig for a number of years just yes, so like, yes okay yes and then you started what writing for other people and kind of branching out of that at, at what point yeah well i guess i should say that like at the end like but right before soul life formed and lettuce was like kind of falling apart that's when i started really kind of focusing on production and like I kind of okay. like had, went into a mind frame of like, I want to be a producer. I'd always played a little bit of everything, bass, guitar, a little bit of keys. I was, I was an engineer. I knew how to eat. So I was like, oh, maybe this is for me. At the time, I lived with a guy named Jeff Basker, who's like a very, very successful producer now. Um, but we had a little studio in our house and we were like doing our little productions and R&B and hip hop. And uh, so it was kind of a parallel existence to soul live like while soul live was happening i was also doing that and like me and adam deitch had a production partnership and we're selling beats to people like we started like some of the early stuff with talib Kweli, and mm-hmm. um we eventually like got to do some g unit and 50 cent when he <laughs> was really popping and yeah records for exhibit and did a remix for snoop dog and we were working with interscope on a lot of stuff Mm-hmm. But at that point, they were very different worlds. Like, uh, like they, like Soul Live existed here, and then the, my producer world. There was there was no Instagram. You couldn't mm-hmm. like look me up and like know that. So a lot of like the producer world, they didn't know I was in a band. You know, so like sometimes there'd be sessions, and I'd have to be like, "Oh, I've got, I'm leaving," and they're like, "What are you doing? I'm I'm in a band. We're touring." They're like, "What?" You know, it was like very <laughs> different, very different worlds, and. um Sometimes they would collide, but um, it, it was a uh, it was a different time. I think I feel like now there's like being diverse, and you you because of like with social media, you get you can like see into someone's world, um, mm-hmm. and you can kind of like get it. Back then, they were it was it was a little different, um, so it was hard for me to maintain the two. Um, right. But eventually, I kind of slowed so like we slowed down the soul live like around two thousand eight maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, I started like doing more, focusing more on production. And uh, but at that time, the record industry started to completely dive. So right. it was like all the like co- like cool placements we got in the t- early two thousands that like you know paid us really well. And I was like, oh man, if I just like keep doing that and really focus on that, I'll be in great shape. But then like two thousand eight, two thousand nine, all the ad- the record advances and the labels went away. Uh, so that was when it was like, okay, let's form our own label. And I started getting more into songwriting. And then eventually it was like, maybe, maybe I just need to make my own records, you know what I mean? And, and, mm-hmm. and do it myself. Um, but during that time, I also started my own label. I, I, I signed, uh, I, I partnered with Sony and with Roundhill Music, started a label, uh, signed the band London Souls, Nigel Hall, um, oh, wow. put out a solo record put out um a few other projects um so i took did my hand at that but again the record industry at that time was so hard to navigate um and to run a label was was tough so you know all of that to say that like by 2012 i decided to just really because i had been doing all this writing and producing different people and i was like you know what i just might as well start singing myself you know so i was like Oh, so this is the first time songs. you sang was really was in two th- starting in 2012. 
Yeah, I mean, I would write, I wrote a lot of the songs. Like when Soul Live had singers, I, I would write the songs, you know, or I would mm -hmm. co-write the songs, depending, you know, and uh, lyrically. I mean, musically, it was collaborative. But I, right. and then uh, um, I like a lot of the Nigel songs on the Nigel's record are songs I demoed myself, but he was such a great singer. I was like, man, you should just sing these. And then when I made my record, Blood From A Stone, my initial concept was like, I was writing all these songs, but I'd also, you know, maybe I could get all these different singers to be on my record. So like I went in and demoed all the songs and the guy that I was writing with at the time, Dave Gutter was like, Hey man, you should just sing these. Why are we waiting around for other singers? Just, just finish this record. Like, and so I did, but then it was like, okay, I got to go out and tour and really learn how to sing, you know, cause I'd always just, so then that was a process, you know, and over those next few years, I really like tried to hone it in. And, and also in that process of like going out and touring as a, as with my band, mm -hmm. started figuring out like what I wanted to sing. And, you know, cause when you're producing other people, it's like, you can kind of go all into all these different worlds. And I, I love that about producing, but then when you're kind of trying to be an artist, you, there's a, it's a different different thing you know you have to mm -hmm. sing the songs every night and you have to like own it so i think i figured that out over time or started figuring it out um which kind of evolved into what i'm doing now with the new record and um with my new band mm -hmm. and uh so yeah i mean it's been a crazy process to get here but uh I i'm thankful for like every piece of it yeah because I, I mean because it's helped inform all all that i'm doing now yeah I, i'm curious to know about the you know singing for the like when you said okay let, i'm just gonna sing the songs now were you nervous at all or worried at all like like you've been in this industry for a long time you had a, a lot of cred and you've done all these things like did you have any nervousness of someone being like oh what do you sing now like i i mean was oh you must i was have been vulnerable i, I to mean do that. i would I was like catatonic. Yeah. I mean, there's just, <laughs> you can't even describe it. It's well, the thing was like being in the studio, I was comfortable. It was mm -hmm. really when I had to go out and do it live. I was like, Holy shit. Do I, uh -huh. Like, am I going to really do this? Um, the other thing was in the studio, I was also like just doing it in whatever key felt right on guitar. Cause you know, I didn't know that I was going to be the singer. So like, if you listen to blood from the stone, I'm like really stretching outside of my vibe and like, because I didn't know what my vibe was, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think with this new record, it's like, oh, okay, the, here's my zone. You know, this is where, well, this is where I can live and like have a, and have character that's unique to me instead of mm -hmm. me trying to do something else. Mm -hmm. um, so I, it, you know, I still love that record because I think there's great songs and I think there's great music. I, I don't know if the, the singing performance is where I'd want it to be if I could do it again, but, there I wouldn't have been there it wouldn't have the evolution wouldn't have happened without that record sure. so um but yes to answer your question so nervous and I still am I'm more confident now um and my band now everybody sings great which is such a cool thing and I've always been really into harmonies you know mm -hmm. whether it's like like starting out with like vocal harmonies but also like guitar like multiple people harmony not just chords like a like two guitars when two guitarists harmonize i love that because like the different vibratos and the, the way they blend same with you know obviously rooted in vocals you know like mm -hmm. i grew up around so much like crosby stills and nash and um temptations and mm -hmm. you know like across the map harmony so my new band uh the assembly it's like everybody sings and the, it's really a theme to the to the band is like just vocals are like everything wow that's 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 interesting because you said like you didn't even start really singing until 2012 and now you're it's kind yeah. of the 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 focal point of, of yeah i mean i still on. play a lot of guitar yeah so i should i shouldn't say that it's all singing but it's it's um you know that when the singing happens it's very full you know that's okay. what i and i and maybe that is because i've i'm still like not so as confident as i would be with my own voice but it's also just because like i have such great singers in my band i want to hear them sing all the time mm -hmm. 
<laughs> when did you start working on this record? Was it, I mean, you talked about mixing and doing everything kind of over Zoom, so or you use pedal, I think is what you said. But yeah. what, when did this, did this all begin when the pandemic um, started or like where yeah, were you when so, that happened and how that affected yeah. your career, obviously? Well, basically when lockdown happened, I, I, I started being like, okay, I'm sitting in the studio, um, started kind of pulling up some of my old songs that I'd never finished and started writing down, okay, what would I want to do for my next record? I thought about making an acoustic record. Um, and, uh, you know, it was just jotting down ideas. And during that, um, I basically met Otis McDonald, who's the producer on my record and kind of my co-pilot on the project. And we met on like Instagram through Will Blades, who's now my keyboard player and Adam. De there was a few of my friends, Adam Deitch too, who were sending, Hey, you got to check this guy out. He, he's a producer. He make beats. Mm -hmm. He sings. He's, plays all these instruments you guys are like kindred spirits you know so initially it was like you guys would just be friends you know and mm -hmm. we started and we were instantly it was like kind of weird because there were so many parallels in our universes and the biggest one at the moment being that my my wife was pregnant with a boy and he had a one-year-old boy so like it was a lot of our conversations were like okay you know about fatherhood and right. studio life and musician life and touring versus studio and you know all the things we had so much in common um and then we and also i had he i just loved what he was doing with his production and his video stuff so i just was asking him a lot of questions hey talk me through this and he showed me a lot of cool technical stuff and then in that process he's like hey i'm doing this compilation for a charity i'd love to work with you on a song and i was like oh great um any ideas? And he was like, well, we're doing covers mostly, but whatever you want. And I was, had just kind of put down a demo of this Bob Dylan tune, Man and Me. And uh, I sent him like, just like a click track with acoustic guitar and a vocal. And he sent me back this like amazing production with drums and keys and background vocals. And it just sounded unbelievable. I was like, you did that with what I sent you? <laughs> and uh I was like, this is amazing. Let's finish it. So I added like lead guitar, added some more vocals. We finished it. And then I was like, Hey man, what about doing more stuff this way? Like, this is easy. I'm in my studio. You're in yours. Neither of us have shit to do. Right. <laughs> you know? My chores are all canceled. So I sent him the next song was this song called silence. And, and he did this crushed it with that one. And then we started being just, it evolved. Like, not just the music, but also our, the process, you know, of like, how are we going to do this? Well, first it was like FaceTime and then it was pedal where I could hear it on my speakers and we could sense audio back and forth and we could communicate at the same time. Um, and that we just got caught this flow that was awesome, you know, and it still sounded really live, you know, it didn't sound like we were sitting on a laptop. Um, and uh, I was like, okay, this is the next album. You know, it, mm -hmm. it was originally like, oh, let's do a couple tracks. And then it was like, no, nah, this is, this is an album. So um, from there, you know, also he introduced me to Curtis Kelly, who's a drummer and producer that lives here, who was kind of like his protege of sorts. And then I had been working with a, an artist that I'd been producing and working with James the eighth. And uh, they're both like in their twenties and like just amazing people and great musicians. And then Will, the keyboard player was kind of the connection between us two. So when we started like theorizing about how to play it live, the band was just like obvious, you know, it was oh, like, okay. Oh, well, Curtis, <laughs> Curtis lives down the street from me and you got a link with him. He loves soul live, da da da. You know, he loves your stuff. He's a great singer. And James, I knew James, but James and Curtis didn't know each other, which is funny because now they're best friends and make music <laughs> together like every day. That's amazing. So, so like our little crew um, came together in this really cool, like natural way. And uh, I just decided to call it the assembly. Our first gig ever was playing Red Rocks, which was like oh an amazing gosh. opportunity. My friends, wow. the Motet were like headlining Red Rocks. They're like, Hey man, come out and support with the new band. And they, and uh, so we got to do like a 75 minute set at a sold out Red Rock for our first gig um which was <laughs> which was epic it's on youtube you can you can check it out it but, that's but, insane uh, 
yeah so that was like how we kicked it off and then uh you know the album now is finally coming out and we're like hitting the road hard we have a full full u.s tour it starts in february um yeah it's coming up in like yeah. a couple of weeks it looks yeah, like a couple of weeks is our first leg of the tour we start out in colorado we do all of california and then uh the east coast tour start is like uh may um we start out in new orleans or in jazz fest and work our way up to new york city and maine and vermont so uh yeah we're like and uh, also we're co co-headlining with son little who's like a really great artist and friend of mine uh so it's gonna be a really fun uh few months you know it's it's a crazy time to be touring right um but um it was one of those things where you know i just don't know what you know the album's coming out we just like gotta push through and and do it and we're gonna do it as safe as we can and hopefully people won't be like scared to come out and um buy tickets and and all that i mean there's so many huge shows happening like i mean big tours i think people are i mean hopefully more apt to like go out and do stuff now i, I would hope yeah i I, I, really, <laughs> I hope so i we're we're excited to, to get out and play i know that. yeah i mean aside from that red rock show have you done any sort of touring at all since the pandemic i wouldn't i wouldn't call it touring but um we did um like a festival called huluween that's out in florida and then what else did we do I feel like we've done like two or three festivals and then uh, we did like one club gig in Denver, like the night after red rocks. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I've been doing some various other things. Um, I did like, I have like an organ trio thing that I did at the blue note with uh, Eric Calvin, Eric Finland. And then uh, I also am musical director for like a few events that we do every year. I just did this one in new Orleans called the tipping point um that i put it's a yearly uh fundraiser for tulane so oh, like, i basically cool. put the band together and then we book the artists we have like trombone shorty oh, and, wow. uh, and jackie green and uh, marcus king and a bunch of great artists do that with us every year and then i'm a part of the love rocks band which is a similar type of event happens at beacon theater every year and uh you know, we've had like Robert Plant and the Keith Richards and Nora Jones and all these great artists join us. Um, wow. And the house band is like epic. It's Steve Gadd, Will Lee, um, Sean Pelton, Paul Schaefer. So it's, I get to play. Those are like my really fun, big shows that I get to do every year mm -hmm. um, when I'm not like, you know, trudging it out on, on the road, you know, with <laughs> sure. my band. You know? Yeah. Are you still producing for other people? And yeah people? still doing still doing um a lot of production it's been a little different with the pandemic in terms of like who and how and all that but i produced a few things for an artist named andy frasco mm -hmm. who's like blowing up right now and he's just like such a great guy uh i produced some songs for mark broussard's new project that just came that's like just coming out um trying to think I, i'm producing james's record which is not out but we're putting a single out soon um but yeah i'm honestly mostly focusing on my stuff and then i also started a podcast of my own yeah i was uh, gonna i want to talk to you about that during the pandemic so that like was another thing that i spent a lot of time on during lockdown and was just like a a concept i'd wanted to um develop for a long time it was i used to have a radio show like every once in a while on uh, on uh, Sirius XM. Oh, really? And, uh, I've come from yeah. radio. That's how I got oh, okay. to doing so, this too. Yeah, I was so radio for a long, long time. The, the thing with XM was that I would come on and it was mainly for playing music and like I would curate playlists and then I would mm -hmm. do interviews, but the, it wasn't a talk radio format. So it was like the my interviews, we'd like get like how I'm rambling right now, like mm -hmm. I'd get the artists just talking and then we'd have to s slice it down to these tiny little things. So yeah, like I always, I a always minute loved, or two, like these little digestible yeah, pieces. Yeah, it like 90 yeah, seconds. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sucks. And I, I had all the, I had like Derek trucks call in and pretty lights and Warren Haynes and Rob Randall. I had all these cool guests, but like it wasn't satisfying to have like 90 seconds at a time. Right. Uh, so, so anyway, I always was like, and then like at, at that time, podcasts were like just kind of becoming a thing, mm -hmm. at least for to, in my world. Uh, and then, um, so initially the concept was like, I was going to do like a show that was filmed. And the first few that I did was right before the pandemic. And I had Marcus King, Sun Little, a guy named Mac Ayers. And we, we filmed it 
mm-hmm. did perform together and then talk, oh, cool. you know, yeah. but that format, once the pandemic hit, it was like, oh, well, people can't really come to your house and can't travel. <laughs> right. Yeah. So at first I was like, oh, well, that sucks. But then I was like, well, there's this thing called Zoom, which was like new at the time. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, well, what if I, and then it dawned on me, wow, the, the list, the wish list of artists that I had created in my mind we're all sitting at home. You know what I yep. mean? Like I, they, none of them were touring. <laughs> so like the first like five or six episodes, I got like Dave Matthews, John Mayer, Questlove, and all That's these great so people that, that I'm, you know, that I'm friends with, but mm-hmm. would have been hard to get to yeah, do any other time like that at right. another time. So I kind of just ran with it from there. And then as time went on, I just like kind of just called all of my music friends and said, Hey, you want to do this? Let's talk about, you know, and then they've now all of a sudden it's like publicists and managers are like hitting us up to do it. Mm-hmm. It became a whole other beast. Um, but I really, it's really, it was just something for fun. It, that, that's all it ever was intended for. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm kind of taking a break from it right now because I'm going on tour, but I'm, we're going to uh-huh. do season two, like season one. It was funny because I didn't even know what I was doing. I, so I we did 77 episodes because I just kept going and going and going. And then yeah. I was like, wait, I need a break. Um, so <laughs> season two won't be 77 episodes. Okay. <laughs> but um, there's a break happening. I'm actually gonna do an episode that's kind of with my producer, Otis McDonald, that'll be based uh-huh. on the album and also on his project. That's but awesome. um so we're doing that, but uh, other than that, we're gonna take a little break and I'm gonna like reconvene. Uh, probably like spring or summer and, and do some more episodes. That's cool. Yeah. That's, that's funny to hearing your story about podcasting because I'm, that's kind of similar to how mine ended up overtaking. Cause I did, like I said, I did radio for 15 years. I was on stations in San Francisco and San Diego. Oh, and, cool. Cool. Um, I was, I actually, bef- we started this at the end of 2018 and podcasting was kind of a thing and they were kind of talking about it and, I pitched an idea to my program director and he kind of told me like, uh, eh, that's too, like, he basically told me like, no, that's not yeah. that, that idea makes too much sense for the radio station. So we're not going to do it. I was right. like, oh, okay. Right. Well, I want it then. Can you sign this piece of paper saying I own it? And they're like, yeah, sure. And then that the pandemic happens and like no one's driving around their cars and the, the radio stations yeah. are tanking because no one's putting money into the uh, advertising. And I'm just right. getting all these people that are sitting around, like you just said, are willing to yeah. talk to me. So I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to do this instead. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It, that's great. I mean, and I love it. I mean, and, and now um, I'm now on the other side doing a lot of podcasts like this week and doing stuff for the record and it's mm-hmm. like i you know I, I i enjoy talking about music i i would do this regardless you know what right, i mean so right. I, I i i appreciate i love podcast format and i listen to tons of podcasts that's like oh, cool you know it's like kind of how i got into the idea was i think i discovered like the mark Marin podcast which mm-hmm. had been going on for years before i even found it and then i so like i was just going back to a lot of old episodes and checking yeah, out a lot, a lot of, of the different- comedians kind of started it early right. early early on and then it right. kind of evolved at that point but yeah the for early ones i listened to yeah were all comedian based right like yeah me too. mark Marin or uh trying to think of some other ones but like yeah it was mainly just comedians that were doing it yeah yeah but that's awesome and i that's i want yeah i wanted to talk to you about that uh podcast i think that's so rad i was looking at some of the episodes that you did early on and that's cool that you can continue with that yeah it's fun it's like it, it got a little overwhelming for a minute and then i was like uh, because it was like okay i gotta do this every week but um uh, you know, now, now I'm kind of just doing it as it comes and, you know, we'll release it a little bit later. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, during the pandemic, it was great. Cause it, was, <laughs> it also, was, also it was just like a chance to like catch up with, with friends. Cause it, it was like a reason to like talk to a bunch of friends and stuff, because at that time we were all locked in our houses and it was like, um, and also it, I got to, you know, a lot, I had known a lot of these artists, but not necessarily been able to, or had the forum to be like, okay, tell me about like your first guitar or this or mm-hmm. that, or working with Miles Davis, like John Schofield. I got to ask him all the like fanboy questions that I right, was right. like too nervous to ask, you know, when we were like 
working together. Out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I got to like nerd out and be a fanboy because that's really, you know, every musician is a super fan. That's like mm-hmm. why we get into it. So mm-hmm. if you get to talk to your heroes, I mean, that's a beautiful thing. Yes, definitely. Definitely. Are you bringing your uh, one-year-old on the road with you? Or too too early. Um, <laughs> he has come out for some stuff. Like he came out to actually he was at the Red Rocks show. Wow. And he came out to the the um gig in Florida when we played the outdoor fest. Um so he's hung out a little bit and he came to Hawaii. We just played we, I did the gig in Hawaii and uh he came and like hung out for a bunch of music there. He loves music. He's like all about it. He plays That's cool. He's, he's got his little drum kit put in a piano and he plays it all day long. That's awesome. That is awesome. That's, yeah. Those are two things that I'm. my son was attracted to as well. And during the nice. pandemic, I'm like, we're going to get you an electric drum set so we don't destroy the neighbor's ears. Nice. And then he, we have a keyboard that he, I need to give him lessons on the keyboard. He has a drummer, drum teacher now that we're here in Nashville, which oh, is cool. awesome. But uh, nice. I haven't found nice. a, a piano teacher willing to take on a five-year-old <laughs> yet. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be looking into that soon for yeah. sure. Well, Eric, thank you so much, man, for, for hanging out with me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I have one more quick question. I want to know if you have any advice for aspiring artists. Um, you know, I think that the combination of like really hard work and real like honesty mm-hmm. is uh, what are like the two most important ingredients, you know? And I also think like, um that there's no right way to do it so like as long as you're working really hard at your craft um try not to compare yourself to anyone anyone else so i think one of the things that happens in the current landscape with like social media is that comparison can turn people away from being an artist you know what i mean like oh mm-hmm. this guy's too good so good i'll never be that but, you know, some of my favorite artists aren't like technically necessarily good. They're just true, you know, and real. So I, I think that in the modern age, it's all about real, you know, it's all about and, and people know what's real. So it's, um, you know, I, I don't it doesn't need to be polished. It just needs to be great. And, in order, and great doesn't great just means you've put work into it and you've like put your everything.